Well, it is a blessing to be here with y'all today. Um, fun fact, uh, expanding on uh, Dr. McCormick's story, um, when I ran into her at the airport, I was going to something kind of plain. I think I was going to a conference. Dr. McCormick was uh, toting a backpack and was heading out on a somewhat impromptu three-day trip, four-day trip to Paris, right? Yeah, yeah. So um, that's the fun fact about that story. And I thought, this is someone that I really, I, we, we connected early over that sense of um, life is to be seized and friends are to be seen. Um, so it's, it's fitting that we, um, as we proceed into this series on community, um, and Dr. Barnes brought us such a lovely word about um, unity in the midst of community, and as we begin talking about the practices themselves, I think it's fitting that we begin with hospitality, um, because it was through her work on hospitality that Christine began to think about community. She was spending, she was spending time looking at communities that did hospitality um, and practiced welcome. They practiced it well. Um, they did it for years in many cases. And she began to wonder what enabled these communities to practice this kind of uh, challenging, to do such a challenging practice to do it well and to do it in a sustained way. So this led to her thinking about the practices that uphold and strengthen communities and allow them to undertake such exciting work. Um, and she also found that hospitality was one of those practices, but in some ways this is what led her into it, and I think that's kind of, um, I think that's exciting. Most people know Christine, if you didn't know her through this campus, um, many people knew Christine primarily through her work on hospitality. Um, it's certainly, the aspect of her work that has gotten, um, gone out to the most people, has been read, disseminated most widely, and has affected many, many people, intentional communities, church congregations, um, all these things. And so when we think about hospitality and her work in it, we kind of think of them in some ways as a piece. Um, at her memorial service, when we lost her this past June, people were marked on her warmth, on her gracious welcome, of students, of faculty, of strangers. Um, they were marked on her generous spirit, her kind reception of others, her love to host people in her home for meals or snacks or tea. I dropped by to visit her when she would always have, um, you know, the little porcelain teacups and the saucers and the spoons and a little plate of, of snacks and goodies. Kind of made me feel inadequate when folks show up and I'm like, here's a mug, you know, <laughs> or maybe a jelly jar, like what, what do we have to offer today? Um, but I think that a lot of folks didn't know about some of the background of Christine's work with hospitality, not just her academic work, but what led her to want to pursue it in the first place. Christine um, spent time after college uh, at Labrie Fellowship in Europe, a place that gathers in seekers, um, lots of questioning of the Christian faith, exploring, growing in depth with Francis and Edith Schaefer. When she returned, she uh, started a Christian bookstore that would welcome folks into a place of learning and community. Um, she worked with Bread for the World. She worked for a number of years with a congregation in New York City that welcomed significant numbers of refugees um, over the span of numerous years. She was very, very involved in this kind of thing, not just academically, but in an academic way that, that grew out of and reflected her deep commitments in life. Um, that was an important thing for me to remember. Um, and actually, hospitality was actually my third experience of Dr. Christine Pohl. Um, I had friends who were students here in 1994. I was living in Virginia and working, and I came in just for a weekend. 
and uh, was staying with um, Anna Strickland Jackson. Some of you may know her. We had been students together in the, um, the Texas Tech Wesley Foundation. And I said, I don't know, I'm thinking about maybe going to seminary. I'm not sure Asbury is my vibe. You know, maybe I'll go somewhere else. There's lots of places to look at. And she said, well, come to class with me today. I think you'll find it interesting. I was living in Appalachia and working in a housing ministry with low-income folks. And she goes, we're talking about something today you might find interesting. So she takes me to class with her. There was a servant as liberator. Now, when I was an MDiv student here, we had um, a number of core equipping classes for the MDiv faculty called the Servant Series. Servant as um, evangelist, servant as liturgist, servant as preacher and teacher. And the one that has now become um, Christian ethics was servant as liberator. And so I went to the servant as liberator class with Anna, and they were watching a movie called Fast Food Women. Um, and so here I am on the day this happens to be the topic, and it's about women working in fast food in Appalachia. Um, trapped in areas with few job opportunities, low wages, uh, lack of meaningful work. Um, and so Christine and I sat and talked for about an hour after her class. She didn't know me from Eve. She had no reason to give me an hour. I was really just a student who'd wandered in. A, not even a student, a potential student. But we sat and spoke for a good long while and heard about why she had chosen this film for her class and why it was important to be shared in this context of the seminary. Um, and then when I enrolled, my first class with her uh, was not hospitality. It was Christianity and Social Justice, which is a course that used to be offered in the catalog. Christine led myself and about 15 other students carefully and thoroughly through the tradition, the language, the history of concepts of justice, of the Greeks, um, through on the Christian tradition, different ideas of it now. I was fortunate to get to explore some of these things with a few students last fall, and it just brought her to presence so deeply. Um, so when I got to her hospitality class, my um, third year in, in seminary, I, um, I didn't come in just thinking that Christine is hospitality and hospitality is Christine. I had this framework in which I encountered the material. Um, through the lenses of liberation and justice, I heard her words on welcoming the stranger, on making space for the other, on um, uh, the idea of welcome and belonging as dignity, as recognition, um, as giving context and roots to folks who are rootless and contextless and vulnerable in the world. Um, so those were the lenses that I brought when I began to think about the practice of Christian hospitality. Um, and simultaneously, I was involved in a community in Lexington that I'll get back to in a moment, but we were doing welcome of our own. And so I was studying this topic, living it over here, and building a relationship with dear Christine Pohl. She was becoming my mentor, and for that I'm deeply grateful. Um, so you would think, with all this, right, um, can we define Christian hospitality? Surely I can pull together a definition. It's what we academics do. Um, so just to kind of hazard a, a definition here for a minute, Christian hospitality can be said to be the practice of welcoming others into a space that is in some ways ours, with particular focus in whom we welcome on the stranger and especially the vulnerable. It emerges from several aspects of the biblical narrative, um, the God who welcomes humanity precisely in our otherness, um, humanity's identity and experience as the stranger and the vulnerable um, in the Eucharist with Christ as um, host and, um, and meal. 
Hospitality can be said to be a present reenactment of the Christ event. Um, the centrality of substance to authentic hospitality is a recapitulation of this Christ event. Um, and it gives us uh, the imperatival, the, um, <clears throat> the non-negotiable quality of hospitality for Christians. Okay, so that's, um, that's a good academic definition, right? It's kind of abstract, maybe a tiny bit intellectual. Let's see if we can take an image that might, um, might shed a little bit of different light on it. Do we have our image? Okay. Can you all see this? So I had lunch with a student yesterday, who had, uh, or day before, who had never, was not familiar with the Far Side cartoons, and my heart was broken. So Cheney, if you're out here, this one is your window into this. So uh, the Far Side was a set of cartoons that was very popular in the 80s and 90s when I was growing up. Um, genius in the Far Side is that there are these one-panel cartoons that um, make a statement in just this one panel. Someone asked Gary Larson, the artist, why are your cartoons so funny, so successful, when you only have the limits? You have the limits of a single-frame format. And he said, you know, when you're going to communicate something complex in a single image, um, you rely on tapping into a universal human experience or a universal human reaction and turning it on its head, perhaps to the point of absurdity. Um, and so what makes his cartoons funny, and funny across the board to a big audience, is that Larson's counting on these situations to be recognized and accepted as absurd. Um, so this cartoon, I just love this cartoon so much. So you've got these two women, elderly presumably, uh, white hair and buns, they're in a, like a little sedan, you know. And up ahead is a fellow who has one peg leg, one eye missing, he's got a hook for a hand, and his sign says, anywhere. <laughs> and the woman, uh, one of the women in the car says, come on, Sylvia, where's your spirit of adventure? And I love this cartoon because, um, you know, the, the thing that makes this cartoon funny in a general sense is that um, we tend to know, when we look at cartoons like this, we know what the right answer is supposed to be, what the sensible answer is supposed to be, and whatever's happening in the cartoon turns that on its head to the point of absurdity. The point is that for two folks, elderly women, to offer hospitality, um, to someone who looks like this is absurd. Um, and so there's different reasons for that. Sort of what, we'll, what we can take away from this one is that's a dumb idea because he looks extraordinarily dangerous and they look very vulnerable. Um, and when faced with an opportunity to offer hospitality, we often wonder if it will be safe. We wonder if we will be safe. Um, and it's sure, to be sure it's something to consider, it is. But often, we couch all our uncertainties and objections under the umbrella of safety. Um, we begin to think that we know uh, what danger always looks like. We take a view of a person, and we say, well, clearly this person is this. And therefore, to interact with this person is um, unwise or dangerous. Um, and even when our physical safety may not be threatened, when that's not a concern, Hospitality can bring us face-to-face -face with other things that feel threatening. Um, in The Magician's Nephew, C.S. Lewis talks about the arrival of some children into the, the world of Narnia and their uncle. And their uncle, Andrew, is, is sort of on the edge of some of the things that are happening as people uh, encounter Aslan and encounter who Aslan is and how he's creating the world. Um, and there are folks who are really taken up with creating the talking, with bringing forth the talking animals, 
And Aslan begins to sing a song that is just, the, the folks who are tuned into Aslan hear it and they resonate. Um, but Uncle Andrew um, did not have the same impression at all. He'd kind of been hiding back in the bushes. And C.S. Lewis remarks, for what you see and hear depends a good deal on where you are standing. And it also depends on what sort of person you are. Um, as Uncle Andrew listened to, An to Aslan's songs, they made him think and feel things he did not want to think or feel. Um, what are some of those things, maybe? Um, as we think about things like uh, approaches to hospitality, we might think about our personal safety, but very often, that's an umbrella over things that are not really about our personal safety, but they feel just as threatening to us. Um, and to be able to, to look into those and see what are the practices, the contra-virtues that we need to nurture in ourselves um, is important to do. In Making Room, Christine says that hospitality um, is central to the meaning of the gospel. She even goes to far, so far as to say that it is a lens through which we can read and interpret much of the gospel. Um, that's a large statement. Um, so in a sense, we can say that hospitality can be seen as an interpretive framework to looking at much of the gospel. Um, we might call that a hermeneutic. What are some of these interpretive frameworks that we find ourselves bringing to situations and, and, and then posture them against the ones that God might be trying to grow within us? Um, do we come to the reading of the gospel and the encounter with life with a posture of scarcity or a posture of abundance? Do we come in with a posture of fear and suspicion or a posture of assurance? Do we come in with a posture of insularity, tribalism, and superiority? Or do we come in with a posture of catholicity, of inclusiveness around God? Um, this is a tough one. Uh, do we come in with a posture of ease and convenience? Or the posture open to challenge and commitment? Um, do we come in with a posture of efficiency, success, and results? Or the posture towards faithfulness and relationship? And finally, do we come in with a, a posture of either hardened cynicism or a fragile idealism? Uh, those things lurk right in the middle of, of communities that try to do these kind of hard practices. Or do we come in having developed a posture of resilient and hopeful realism? Um, posture of scarcity? Is our first inclination or default posture one of worry? Are we inclined to keep or hoard our resources because we might need them someday? Um, what if I run out of food? Um, what if I don't get what I need, what I want? Um, oftentimes we might hog, hold leftovers because we think we might need food later on or we don't want to share our grocery budget. I'm speaking of myself, you know, very often because we think, oh, we'll need this later. I need to hold on to this. Um, things are scarce. Um, in contrast, a position of abundance is characterized by a trust in God's goodness and faithfulness, his ability and willingness to meet my needs with daily manna. This gives me comfort and encouragement when I see an opportunity to share. It doesn't make me retreat. It makes me stand and be open. Um, because God has been so generous with me, has blessed me, I can model, reflect, and imitate the generosity with security and joy. Um, a posture of suspicion arises from a perennial mistrust of the other. Persons who are outside of our spheres of comfort um, outside of the family, friends, neighborhood, or nation to which we belong, um, or outside our spheres of control, work, children, employees, 
who are unknown to us in some way, these can generate anxiety, apprehension, and uncertainty. Left unchecked, this can develop into a posture of fear towards the world, towards the other, in its entirety. Um, the world is viewed as unsafe, unreliable, dangerous, inherently dangerous, and a constant source of threat. Um, in contrast, a posture of peace and assurance views the world as full of God's goodness and kingdom activity. While recognizing and remembering the fallen state of the world, which we need to do, surely, um, we can also view ourselves as part of the larger world, full of God's presence and undiscovered blessings. Um, I love that phrase, undiscovered blessings. Uh, what's waiting for us around the corner? Is it danger or is it perhaps something that might be really exciting? Um, uh, if fearing the outside and the other is sort of the exterior component of um, suspicion, the interior component is this posture of um, insularity and tribalism. A posture of tribalism places emphasis on prioritizing and preferencing our people, whether that's our family, our community, our nation. Um, it can be, um, even when there isn't an explicit distrust of strangers, you don't have to say it in very explicit ways, um, our, an immoderate emphasis, an unchecked emphasis on our people can create exclusion by default, um, a benign neglect that leads us to care for ourselves and um, not even see the need to care for others. While it's natural and often healthy to create, uh, to create and strengthen connections with similar people, that's a very natural thing to do. Um, how, do we batch, uh, <clears throat> how do we balance nature with the call of the gospel, with the countercultural nature of it? Um, these connections should increase our capacity for warmth and welcome, not stunt its development. In contrast, a posture of Catholicity and family helps us to be open to the others um, beyond the conventional worldly frameworks that we tend to operate in. Other postures often arise from tendencies more particular to our North, uh, modern and North American context. A posture of productivity places very high value on continuous production the maximization of value, um, and often value as the world assesses it. Um, we have to-do lists, we have life hacks, we like to brag on someone we know or someone we raised or someone we're married to being the youngest CEO in the history of the company. Um, we like to um, perform efforts and, that will ensure that we are judged by the results and judged in a good way. Mediocre results indicate failure, and we're urged to eliminate a goal that produces mediocre results and focus instead on the promise and possibility of spectacular returns, of big wins. Um, productivity is usually measured by quantifiable results. It's regarded as one of the most valuable and reliable metrics of mature and successful life. Um, this is the world's playbook. It also brings in things like efficiency and convenience. Um, very often when we are resistant to welcoming others into our midst, we're not so much afraid of engaging physical harm as of being inconvenienced. Um, it's, a very, um, it's a very natural thing. We, uh, Americans are used to lots of convenience. We are bred on efficiency. And um, doing the Lord's work um, is a very often not efficient and not convenient. Um, it's making space within ourselves to receive God's agenda for the moment and not our own. Um, my... Uh, my first husband and I uh, share, uh, welcomed someone for six years in our home when we were part of a community in Lexington. We'd gotten to know him through church, and um, he was odd, not dangerous, 
we, um, after a few years of kind of meeting him in this common space, we decided to invite him to live with us. It stretched out into six years, uh, three years after our first child was born, and um, we never felt unsafe, but it was definitely odd. There were lots of inconveniences. There were things that didn't work as well as we might have wanted them to um, from one of our, from our model sort of of how normal life is supposed to go, how normal families are supposed to look. Um, Keith Wasserman, uh, with Good Works up in Ohio, he talks about cultivating an ethic of inefficiency in his ministry because we need to dethrone this thing that so often leads us to marginalize those already marginalized because they are going to cramp our style. Um, and finally, um, it's important to realize that whenever we do anything of God's work, be it the practice of hospitality or something else, um, we are fallen, we deal with fallen people, um, and there will be failures, there will be sins of commission and sins of omission, ways we don't measure up. Um, and very often, folks... Um, who have a little bit of idealism in you, like I'm sure a lot of us do, we really want things to go well, and we struggle between these two poles of fragile idealism, and when our fragile idealism is, is broken or shattered, we tend to fall into a posture of hardened cynicism. You know, well, you can't, you know, people, <laughs> people are always out for whatever they can get. You know, if you, give an, if you give them an inch, they'll take a mile. If you feed one person, you're gonna have 20 at your door. Um, Hermeneutic of hospitality embodies what I like to call a resilient and resurrected realism. Um, we know the reality of ourselves and others has fallen. We also know the reality that we serve a God of resurrection who resurrects every day and every moment. Um, the verse from 2 Timothy is one of my very favorites because I just think it's so rich in what it gives us to live out the Christian life. Um, God does not give us a spirit of fear. He doesn't. Um, that doesn't mean that we need to be fools, although we can talk about being holy fools in another venue. <laughs> but, you know, God, what God gives us is a spirit of love, a spirit of power, and a spirit of what the uh, Scripture calls self-discipline. In, uh, in the Greek, it's actually the word for sound-mindedness. We have power and love and sound-mindedness. That's a formidable arsenal to move forward in the ministry of God. Um, so what is Christian hospitality with all these hermeneutics? It views and engages the world with hopeful, discerning, confident, and faithful expectation. It looks for information and meaning outside of one's fears of control and comfort. It recognizes differences, and instead of devaluing or diminishing them, it appreciates and embraces them with a process of healthy discernment. Christian hospitality is intentional, dynamic, active. It's tangible, but not pragmatic. Um, and it turns, it converts the Christian imperative um, to practice hospitality from obligation to opportunity. Um, from, you mean I have to do this, to I get to do this. Um, and we look in the, in the epistles, and hospitality is not one of the things that's listed as one of the gifts, although we can be gifted at it. Um, hospitality is one of the imperatives that show up along things like uh, pray without ceasing, um, welcome one another. Um, these are things that are disciplines and practices laid out for all of the, all of the church, all of the, all of the body of Christ. Um, we wouldn't cease praying because others seem to be very gifted at it, um, nor do we opt ourselves out of welcoming just because some seem to do it very well. Um, 
So hospitality, it's an enacted and it's an embodied hermeneutic. It's a lens that we employ to see the world through God's eyes. It requires intentionality, uh, thoughtful choice. A practical facet of this, of this welcome is curating our lives in such a way that it facilitates this welcome, uh, leaving buffers at the edges of our budgets, um, our calendars, leaving a sense of margin to be filled by God's unexpected guests. Um, hospitality might seem to be quite um, spectacular, and many of our ideas, we kind of think that it is. We welcome refugees at the border or um, taking in the homeless for a homeless shelter or whatnot. Hospitality is actually quite ordinary. Um, it's, the, it's the basic things of giving someone a place to sit or to sleep, to sharing a meal with someone, um, listening to their needs, and letting them know that they are heard and seen. Um, It can be difficult to curate this practice um, alone, and so we do it in community. Hospitality is one of those things that takes community to do well and builds community when done well. Um, and this gets back to uh, the title of the sermon, uh, uh, where we stand, what we see, and who we are. Um, what happens when an opportunity to say yes or no presents itself? What does it look like in our lives as Christians? Um, why is the Matthew 25 passage one of the central passages for the tradition and practice of Christian hospitality? Um, it may have something to do with the fact that the people who didn't recognize Christ in the stranger didn't realize where they might see him. Um, when Christ uh, speaks to those on his left, they don't reply, who are you and how'd you get this number? <laughs> it's like they, they know, they know who's addressing them. They know. Um, and they thought... That they, do, that they knew enough. We think that we know enough. Um, but we don't know all we need to know sometimes. Um, do we have the posture, the ability, the eyes to see Jesus in all the ways that Jesus might appear? Um, looking back at our cartoon, you know, we assume that we know the natural way, the right way to see that situation. Um, I'm sure my husband out there is thinking, no, not you. You wouldn't be the one who picks up someone dressed like that in your 80s because I'm the kind of person that might do that. You know, where's our sense of adventure? Where's our sense of holy expectation? Um, but the natural and right way to see things, it's great for cartoons. It's not bad by the world's playbook. Um, but we don't always know that that's the right way. Um, what is God's way of seeing the situation? Is it always what we think of as natural or as right? Um, how do we perceive and approach the unexpected strangers that arrive in our path? Where is our spirit of adventure? Where are the blessings promised to us in 2 Timothy 1.7? Are we using those gifts that God has already poured into us? Um, how do these things enable us to see the Lord in unexpected disguise? Um, so, in another of his works, C.S. Lewis, uh, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the children go into Narnia, and they um, are talking to the beavers, being hosted for dinner by the beaver family, and Susan is asking about Aslan. She goes, oh, I thought Aslan was a man. What do you mean Aslan's a lion? They said, yes, he's a lion. And Susan said, that doesn't sound safe. Is he safe? And she presses them, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Um, do we want our communities to be um, perfect in the worldly sense? 
as Matt spoke of two weeks ago, do you want them to be telos in the perfect sense, or do you want them to be complete? Do you want our communities to be safe in the worldly sense, or do we want them to be good? Um, who are we? Who are we at nurturing ourselves to be um, in our posture towards God and the world and the other who might show up on our path? Um, let's pray on that together. Lord, we, we confess the times that we have seen with eyes that are not shaped um, by your eyes, um, by your heart, by your values. Um, help us, Lord, to take a good look at the hermeneutics we're carrying around, at the postures that we feel comfortable in, and help us to lay those at the cross that you will um, crucify resurrect, sanctify, and return them to us. And we will continue on this journey with you, this great adventure um, into which you've invited us. Amen.